Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. and I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And today we're going to talk about something we've never talked about before. So I'm not going to waste the surprise here. I'm sitting with Dr. Sarah Richardson. And Dr. Richardson is the CEO and co-founder of Microbuyer. And is it Microbuyer or MicroBA? I'm pretty sure it's Microbuyer. Microbuyer, but it's B-Y-R-E. Yeah, it's an old English word. Okay. The old English word buyer, I think it literally means cowshed, but it's the source of the modern words for barn and bower. It's a place where you breed domestic animals. A place where, well, a place where domestic animals breed yeah that's what i do in my spare time <laughs> no business of anyone's here uh but i really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you because i had an intriguing conversation the other night with you just getting to know you about uh, what you do so um like the domestic cow and the domestic goat and the domestic dog um you domesticate organisms and so tell me about who and what you domesticate well we domesticate bacteria so it's uh, interesting to me, you left cats off your list of domesticated, bacteria, uh, domesticated animals. I would not argue with that. I think people have a very good sense of which animals are tame, domesticated, feral, wild. And the public has a really good understanding of some of them just not being domesticatable. Sometimes we overlook all the work that went into getting some of these animals and plants and fish and birds to the point where they're really safe, useful, and productive for us. And we wanted to focus on a, a kingdom of life that is similarly really, really, really has a lot of potential, but not a lot of domesticates that have come and worked with us. So yeah, bacteria. So let's talk about that though. So what does domestication mean? Well, I'm sure you have opinions on this too, <laughs> and I definitely am always looking for feedback on this. But for us, domestication implies a set of rules about how an organism interacts with us and the environment. For us, we think of it as domesticated when it chews its cuds. Okay. And the really the most important part of that is the U, but if I put U first, it wouldn't spell cuds and it would be harder to remember. But CUDS stands for containable, useful, docile, and safe. And we feel that we can't really call one of our organisms domesticated until it hits those marks. By containable, we mean that when we put it in a fermenter, it wants to stay in the fermenter, and it's not likely to do well or thrive outside of the fermenter. And the analogy I like for that is my golden retriever, a thoroughly domesticated animal. If I leave him in the yard, he's staying in the yard. It doesn't really occur to him to go out in the street because I'm in the house. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to stay close to his favorite person and his source of food. He's, he's really, truly a pathetic animal. Well, he knows where his bread is buttered. 
He, he does. It's actually my husband. Is the one that feeds him. Uh, but he, he likes us. Uh, second is useful. Again, this is the most important one. Going through the process of domestication, you really should start with something that you can perceive to have some use. This is why cats even entered the process at all, is they help keep granaries clean, they help uh, prevent pests. There's some animals that we could definitely domesticate if we put enough time and space into it, but are they useful to us? Zebras. I know popularly, and I'm willing to have this argument, zebras are considered undomesticable. I would say anything is domesticatable, but it might not be worth it. If it requires a lot of space, a lot of time to get it, what are we going to get out of a zebra that we don't have out of a horse? And this third one is docile. It needs to take commands from you. You need to be able to harness it. You need to be able to ask it to do things or stop it from doing things. And if you can't, it's not domesticated. It might be tame. It might be feral. And the last one is safe. We want them to not cause disease to ourselves, to each other, to other domesticates, or to our uh, agriculture or plants. And we feel that way strongly about our pigs and our cows and our corn. And that's a very important part for us when we bring it to microbes. Well, that really is what the central question is, is that why would somebody want to domesticate a microbe? That's a question we get asked a lot. And what we do is point out all the places where microbes are already in their lives, maybe almost to domesticate it, at least tame and somewhat underappreciated. We think bacteria run this planet. We think they are actually handling most of the stuff that we take for granted. As an engineer, I take that as a high compliment. When something I've built, people go, well, it's always been that way. That is the highest and most frustrating compliment an engineer can get. Luckily, bacteria don't really care what we think. They're going about their boss business anyway, but there are bacteria in the ocean that are producing massive amounts of the oxygen in our atmosphere, at least 50%. There are bacteria that are keeping all the plants that we want to eat alive. There are bacteria more closer to home. All the cheese we make is made with bacteria. Uh, the pickles would not be possible, or at least the tastiest pickles are made with bacteria. Olives, bacteria showed us how to eat olives, because that is a plant, in my opinion, that does not want to be eaten. <laughs> He's trying to tell us to stay away. We didn't listen. I think it was the Romans that figured out to the one-two punch with bacteria to make olives edible. Oh, yeah. Chocolate and coffee, all of that uh, processing is done with yeast and bacteria. Just right on the vine and then right next to the tree, the bacteria break down all the mucilage on the coffee bean and help uh, clean up the, the chocolate pods. We would not have these stimulants without the action of bacteria. And of course, every time we engage in a process like this about yogurt or bread for yeast, we're selecting which populations we liked that were tasty and worked fast. And over 6,000 years, we've come to microbes that, if not domesticated in the modern genetic sense, are at least tame and working with us. And if you don't want cheese, maybe you want coffee. And if you don't want that, maybe you want chocolate. But these are very beginner reasons to want microbes around. Wow, that, that's really fascinating. So we actually have, by accident, domesticated microbes we didn't even know were there. But how do you as a company domesticate microbes? We're very interested in the fit for purpose bit of it, the usefulness. So what we see ourselves facing is a planet that has some issues that need to be quickly addressed. 
And one of those is to help us get off some dependencies that we have created for ourselves. We see microbes as part of the answer to a question we sort of made a decision for ourselves a while ago. We used to make all of the chemicals we wanted from biomass. That's why so many of them have names like celluloid, cellulose. They were all made from plant material. And we got a lot of chemicals, a lot of mileage, a lot of this revolution for how uh, we make things from biomass. But at some point, we switched to a petroleum standard. And to be fair to petroleum, petroleum is really ancient, non-renewable biomass. So it's kind of like we're using old English, but the rest of the organisms on the planet are using modern English. They're getting a lot more done a lot more efficiently. As long as we're using petroleum we're it's not sustainable i don't think that's really especially for your audience i don't think that's an issue it's not controversial but we don't know how to efficiently make use of biomass as humans so my company wants to turn to the microbes the bacteria that make all of our poop disappear <laughs> we are not hip deep in biomass we don't wade through it every day and that is thanks again to the really un underappreciated action of microbes. When things get composted, we have that term for it as though it's sort of magic and it just goes away. It's really microbes turning it to methane. We would like to be able to harness them and collaborate with them to break down all kinds of things and maybe make stuff other than methane. Oh, that's really interesting. So what's a great, so the number one microbes you're making, are these strictly used in that decomposition process to try to get ones that maybe are more efficient or have different outcomes? Oh, there's one thing you said that I'm glad you said it so I can bring it up. We try really hard to avoid the language of design, create, or make. We don't make life. We're domesticating it. Okay. <laughs> so uh, well, it's, it's, um, it's easy to slip up in the language, but particularly in a world where people have concerns about genetic editing and GMOs, we don't want to give the impression that we think we're in control or that we're creating life. We're not. We are domesticating so then I hear your question as, so what are the interesting bacteria that you can domesticate in, uh, in this methane pathway or in this chain? And really what I'd say is uh, we want to be able to take complex biomasses that are otherwise too expensive for canonical biotech to access. Usually if you want to do fermentation, you've got to change whatever biomass you're making or you have to sugar. That takes a lot of energy. It can take a lot of transportation. We want to be able to access more of the raw stuff. Let's not break it down to sugar because a bunch of bacteria can access that as it is. And then the goal would be not necessarily to take it to methane and use methane as a feedstock, but to interrupt the process before it gets there with a complex or maybe, if we're lucky, simple collaboration of different bacteria that can say, well, he made this out of that, and I'm going to take that and make this and then from this we're going to make that over there and now this is profitable and it wasn't methane does that make sense no i think so i think so it was but you're talking about basically different bacteria that collaborate in a process to take something from beginning to end a product to well some sort of um, material and create a product but what is a really good example that i could wrap my head around of something that would be a product that would come out of this process well, especially given your interest in agriculture, and I'm assuming your audience is somewhat interested in agriculture, uh, we are hoping to be able to work in uh, animal probiotics. With, does that um, sound interesting? The, sure. Right now we understand most of our livestock is, if not all of it, is fed, uh, it's what's called direct fed microbials. 
So it's like yogurt for chickens. <laughs> and they're, they're very species specific. Uh, the chickens get this particular species of lactobacillus and it's proven to improve chickens' life. Their outcome, their weight, their health uh, is tied to being fed this probiotic. At the same time, we also supplement their feed with uh, nutrients that are made in another bacteria. So we've got two bacterial actions going on to get us to eggs. We'd like to see if we can't combine those. Encourage the direct-fed microbial to make more of the amino acids that you would otherwise have to supplement in the feed, that they could be all in one dose and lower feed costs and therefore lower food costs. Is that a, an example of what you're looking for? No, it's a really good one, but I look forward to hearing a few more. We're speaking with Dr. Sarah Richardson. She's the CEO and co-founder of Microbiome. Um, this is a Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Fulta, host of the Talking Biotech podcast, and I'm really excited that we're heading towards our 1 millionth download and 200th episode it's a milestone for any podcast and it's because of you and i'll tell you what i have been inundated with emails lately saying thank you for the podcast and excited about what we're doing going forward the problem is is that i now am not taking part in twitter at least not personally the talking biotech podcast is still there this means that there's less opportunity to expose new people to this particular product. This is where you can help. Use social media to share this episode. Share it with other people who may be interested. It turns out there are a lot of people that are. And if I had a dollar for every person in the last two weeks who said, I can't believe I never found this, I'd have like $14. No, like more like 10 But that you get the idea that there's a lot of people that just don't know it's there. So that's an easy fix. We just have to raise awareness of the resource. And it's because we're here for the right reason. We're trying to expose more people to the realities of biotechnology, not just the scary, fearful stuff or the cheerleader hype. We want people to hear from the experts the good things we can do for people and the planet. Thank you for listening as we move ahead towards episode 200. And welcome back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. This week we're speaking with Dr. Sarah Richardson. She's the CEO and co-founder of Microbiome, And it's an intriguing look into the capacity to use microbes to be able to do the work that we'd like to do but by domesticating the ones that do it best and basically there's a um, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong but there seems to be almost an untapped resource of potential bacteria domesticates that could um, maybe do our work a little more efficiently and and I think I'm understanding this better and better all the time now I think it's super cool so are there um, other domesticates that you that you find that make novel products that are things that maybe are useful it is i think a very under appreciated expanse of space what behaviors what products some of these microbes are making the planet is massive and bacteria are tiny and there are no niches on this planet where there is not life we've dug miles underground and there should not be any life here and yet there is and it's not alone <laughs> so 
the space for what's possible is broad and we haven't sampled it as widely as we could. This is another issue for uh, climate change and some of our urgency. We want to start thinking about what these bacteria are doing and how we can capture it and maybe keep samples of them before they disappear, before we didn't even know they were there. For me, one of the pressing examples of this is um, actually not a novel thing. We knew bacteria were doing it, but by the time we realized how important and how varied they were, they might have been gone already, and that is plant fertilization. That when we decided to switch to synthetic nitrogen, we got an immediate bump in the size of our crops. What we didn't realize we had done is crash the bacterial economy around plant roots. So the way I tell a story, and I hope you correct me <laughs> if this is inaccurate, <laughs> is that plants sort of put on an audition like American Idol. They put out a call into the soil and say, who can help me drill through this rock? Because they don't do that. They get bacteria to do it. They say, who can help me survive in this nitrogen-poor environment? And they put out a hormone or a call, they feed some bacteria, and the bacteria come flocking, knocking on their door and going, pick me, pick me, pick me. When the plant auditions them, it lets them into its own body and says, all right, show me what you got. And the plants do a tap dance, they do a shuffle, and they say, look, I'm making nitrogen, look, I'm making hormones to make you happy, look, I'm making chemicals that kill your enemies. And the plant goes, great, you can stay. Sometimes the bacteria get in and go, ha, 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 fooled you. I Now I have your Netflix password and you'll never get me evicted. And the plant <laughs> does a sanction where they say, well, you, you can stay there, but I'm killing this root tip. <laughs> you will get no more nutrients. This was a really complex interaction that happened in the soil. I like to think of plants as space stations and all the cells, the bacteria, they're, they're astronauts. They come and visit, and if they're doing well, they build this massive civilization. So that makes humans spaceships. We travel yeah. from place You're to place. probably feeding your plants a more complex mixture. But uh, right? when we started dropping nitrogen exactly. on the soil, plants don't have to put out the call. And when they stopped putting out the call, they stopped getting all the ancillary benefits that you also get from the bacteria's presence. And so you start to see you put more and more synthetic nitrogen on for less and less benefit because we killed those bacteria. We gave them no more reason to be there and helping. And that's a concern to me is what novel things did we miss already because we didn't understand the role of bacteria in our lives already. That's a really good answer. And, you know, and I'll be honest, I used to think that was kind of BS that, you know, that, well, we, we can just feed it everything it needs and it'll be fine. We grow plant, and I grow plants in sterile culture. And they do just fine. And, and, and these are places where you can't have bacteria. So it was one of these things I was very skeptical about. But the more that I learn about this, the more exciting I get. You're probably feeding your plants a more complex mixture, right? Right. I and give them everything they need. Exactly. It's a total, like, uh, one of the things that you mentioned here, which is one of the questions I wanted to think about. And maybe you're thinking in this space, maybe not. It seems to me a tremendous potential to be able to deliver needed metabolites or say secondary compounds or maybe drugs or whatever to places like on a space station or in the developing world where you don't have direct access to something that could be you know like a, say some sort of secondary compound an antibiotic a drug whatever that um, you can't bring a manufacturing system with you and could you you know put a little bit of input on one side have a couple bacterial steps to to create the thing you need. I really do like that question. I try to stay a lot more concrete in my prognostications for reasons of uh, business success. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm asked to envision a future that has been changed by what we're doing and where we hope to be, this is absolutely 
where my sci-fi adult brain wants to go. <laughs> I want there to be a future where it's more distributed biomanufacturing. There's clearly things, I think, it's going to be harder for us to, to do distributed manufacturing of, I'm not going to make steel beams in my kitchen. Uh, <laughs> that's very sci-fi. But I would like there to be a future where lyophilized bacteria, that bacteria that have been freeze-dried so they can be stored for a very long time, you could order them on Amazon. And you can feed them your own compost and have them make things that you can then spin into biodegradable products. This is an example I like. I, w let me be clear, we're years away from this. Years and years and years and years and acceptance and infrastructure away. But I do like to have my head in the clouds as long as I keep my feet on the ground. So imagine that you order this lyophilized bacteria from Amazon, you feed it some of your compost that you've been keeping under your kitchen sink, and it grows and makes a polymer precursor, some monomer, that you then dump into your 3D printer and it spins you out fabric and you custom print your whatever logo you wanted to have on your chest this week. And when you're done with this shirt and the logo is no longer cool, the memes have moved on, you can just compost this shirt and have done circular manufacturing in your own house without any of the need for the transportation, for the logistics. And yeah, I can see that being also really helpful for things like antibiotics. Have your doctor prescribe a bacteria, say this is the one that you're going to grow up and then drink the syrup. And if you grow it from your composted banana peels, it's going to taste delicious. I absolutely love these kinds of ideas and this kind of thinking. We have a lot of work to do to get there, but yeah, that's that's where we want to be. Yeah, but that's the kind of blue, you know, the kind of uh, you know, big sky thinking that you know, as as technology really accelerates, and then we start to think about the overlays in of genetic engineering and gene editing. That I know you're you guys probably aren't engaging much at this point, but how do you make something that's already been domesticated um, a little bit better, or maybe add some synthetic component to it? Ask the dog breeders ask the rose fanciers that they have not had access to CRISPR technology and yet we have chihuahuas and great danes once you've really gotten something in its niche specialized uh, it, it's a lot easier to select for whatever traits are still going to be in its bailiwick you do not want me adding CRISPR to a dog so that i or i think a better example here is a goat we have lots of breeds of goats you don't want me to crisper them to take away their horns, change their metabolism so that they eat meat instead of grass, change their hooves to claws, and then miniaturize them so that you can have them in your house to catch mice. With domestication as our pragma, as our paradigm, we really want to think about genetic direct genetic manipulation as something we do the smallest possible amount of because our job is to pick the right organism for the job, and he should he or she. <laughs> the organism should be almost all of the way there to what you need, but perhaps unused to coordinating with humans or growing in the conditions that would help you scale it. So we, we're we excited by genetic engineering tools and techniques, but we want to be parsimonious about their application because we feel if we're doing too much of that, we've missed the original point was that maybe this isn't the right organism for this job. Yeah, so evolution has already done that work for you. That's exactly right. And we also want to be cognizant of the fact that in nature, there are no single organism niches. There are no ecosystems where there is only one species. And that is a powerful signal that we must not ignore. In bioengineering, we tend to think, okay, I'm going to work in this organism, on this feedstock, and it's all by itself in there. And that's really unnatural, actually. Even in the human gut, we are not self-sufficient without the bacteria in our gut. And that includes E. coli, 
the bacteria in our gut make vitamins for us without which we would be dead just dead and we made this deal with bacteria thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago mammals were said okay we're not going to make these genes anymore we got bacteria in our guts they're going to do it for us and the bacteria went cool thanks for the room and board here's my monthly rent payment <laughs> so it's really important to us that if we're looking at oh we're going to have to shove a bunch of genes in here or we need to do a lot of editing that instead we step back and think who else could we add to this community that would be able to buffer this reaction or provide this step and I think this is a lesson that we should all take as biological beings <laughs> moving in biological groups all the way up to boardrooms if you only have one species of individual in there you are not as robust to perturbation and change and you might not make it so consider diversifying <laughs> <laughs> so all right let's talk a little bit about about that last idea about the um, the gut and those kinds of things where are you, where in your company do you source these bacteria? Are you looking for things from soil or or from uh, uh, you know dookies or where what do you, <laughs> where, where where are you looking for your, where are you looking for the starting material? I do love poop jokes. I'm not going to lie. Biologists need to be earthy. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the easy answer, and, and it's true, is where is the job? If if you want something that is helping to break down poop, yeah, you look at poop. If you want something that's making uh, a compound, you must ask yourself where in nature is that compound found and what is it being used for? We ask ourselves a lot uh, to have a feeling for the organism, that we're biologists, we're domesticators, so we think, why are they doing this? How do they feel about it? And I know that sounds wishy-washy, but the emergent property of making lots of copies of yourself is your preference emerges really quickly. <laughs> Within generations ago, we don't like this. We're not doing this. And it's important to kind of have that empathy for what they're doing and why. And that's how we find them. We don't have to go looking for a lot of these interesting bacteria. Scientists and engineers over the past hundred years have done a lot of surveys and a lot of studies and hit different roadblocks in their adoption of some of these bacteria. Recently, the pragma has been, I don't really need to worry about growing it or where I got it because I'll take the genes out and put them in E. coli. But they still gathered a lot. We found this bacteria in this acid salt mine drainage and you can imagine why he's there. Nobody else wants to be there so he's specializing <laughs> with his buddies. And that's really how we find them is we, it's fit for purpose again. Usage, domestication, why were you there? What were you doing? You must be good at it. Nobody else wants to live there, so you're our guy. So are those extremophiles particularly useful inside your company's vision and inside your plans? Absolutely. You don't have to take my word for it. I encourage anyone who's skeptical or curious uh, to look at the enzyme industry. Uh, my numbers might be old or you know, um, ill-informed, but my, at my estimates, the enzyme industry was $4 billion a year. And enzymes are all made in cells. We don't have chemical processes to create enzymes. So they're done in fermentation. And any time you can convert a batch catalysis process that undergoes a high temperature, high pressure over a metal bed to a continuous process where the catalyst itself just crunches and crunches and crunches like an enzyme does, you'd be a fool not to take it. So industry has always been very open to adopting enzymatic procedures where they save on waste, they save on danger to their employees, they save on all kinds of things. But you have to be able to make those enzymes and make them at scale to be able to efficiently and productively replace chemical processes. So I, there's about seven classes of enzyme that industry has embraced wholeheartedly and they're all made in one or two different species 
that are what we call mesophiles. They really only like a narrow range of environmental activity. So if you want an enzyme that is very powerful and active at high temperatures or at low pHs, they're not necessarily the best place to make that enzyme. And to bring it home, how this actually impacts human life every day, Tide Pods, which are one of the most popular products for multiple reasons, don't eat them, not that anyone is actually eating them, I don't think, is Tide Pods are three enzymes. It's a, an amylase to break down starches, a lipase to break down fats, and a protease to break down proteins. Turns out most of the stains on our clothes are food. <laughs> and when they switched from chemical ingredients, detergents, to enzymes, we lost grass stains. We lo all these things go away. And Tide Pods are just enzymes now. It's been a massive shift. Uh, it saves so much money in transportation and energy costs. It's safer for the environment because these enzymes are organic. They just break right down. They break down the food traces and then they go down the drain and, and get broken down as opposed to detergents. Massive improvement in quality of life and sustainability. And it's because they ferment these enzymes in genetically modified bacteria. But those bacteria have a narrow range of happy happiness in this, therefore their enzymes have a narrow range of, of features. If you want enzymes that work in really, really, really hot washes, these might not be the Tide Pods for you. This is something we hope we can provide some expansion for in the enzyme industry is by, yes, going to a salt mine or going to uh, the hot springs, finding bacteria that are making enzymes there, which, let me be clear, we didn't invent that idea. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. There have been Nobel Prizes for finding the right enzyme from the right hot pool. Sure. Yeah, TAC polymerase exactly. is a great example. Oh, yeah. exactly. But uh, getting more of those and being able to produce them at scale, at massive industrial and not necessarily scientific or research scales, that's where we hope to help the whole industry move on. Yeah, those are actually fun because they're easy to um, isolate because you have this heat cut that every, kills everything else except for your, so that's pretty cool. So is there any product that you, um, your company already markets that people would recognize? I hate to tell you how young we are. <laughs> We're uh, very much aspirational uh, for the market at this point, but we are about six people. And we've just received some funding that we're was going to get us to that point so we can raise even more money and make more of a splash. But the difficulty for a small company with microbes is doing stuff, yeah, that consumers would recognize on the end. And so it's unlikely for a while that we would be consumer-facing at all. We're hoping to provide value to the big brands that consumers would recognize or that are making ingredients that consumers would recognize and helping them save money on their back end that then gets passed to consumers, and that's the best I can promise <laughs> in the short term. But the, but the good part about this is that, you know, the thing that you do deliver, and you've already delivered very much for me, is a more complicated understanding, or I should say a more sophisticated understanding of the idea of, not, of domestication, but also this idea that we can have bacteria that help us with some of these important questions. Yeah, they already are helping us, <laughs> and they'll keep doing it whether or not we think. I teach a class on domestication, and I always talk about it, taking something from the wild and bringing it into our own provision to help us with a job we're trying exactly. to do or whatever. Are you going to add a bacteria section now? I think I have to. <laughs> I'm convinced. So, Dr. Sarah Richardson, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure to meet you and learn about your company, and best wishes going forward. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here, and I'm really happy to you hit me up on Twitter, at the germ wrangler. At the germ wrangler. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And the company is Micro. Buyer, micro, micro buyer, B Y R E.
and uh, this is Kevin Fulta on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Since I'm no longer personally on Twitter, um, I, I do ask if you could please uh, share the podcast for me. Uh, get it out there, share it with friends, uh, write reviews on iTunes, um, and I really would appreciate that. It helps us in the dissemination of the information that helps us share science and learn all about how we can domesticate the things we can't see. But thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.